This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Missed. Probably be somebody back there. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 7. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. A couple of weeks ago, we saw how God told Jeremiah that before he was even formed, that God had set him apart to proclaim judgment against Judah. And last week, we saw how God began describing why he was judging Judah as he spoke to them like a husband who had been betrayed and cheated on. But God didn't exactly say how Judah had cheated on him. Which brings us to our passage this morning. Look at the first two verses of Jeremiah chapter 7. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So God commanded Jeremiah to speak these words from the temple steps, which is why this passage is often called Jeremiah's temple sermon. It would be like God telling one of us to stand out in front of the church and proclaim these words of judgment while the people came in and out. However, what God is going to describe here in our passage today are some of the darkest words and verses in the whole Bible like a growing wave of wickedness that is about to crush its hearers on the exposed rocks below. What God is going to expose here is the depths of Judah's depravity. And what's worse is they're not going to receive it well. In Jeremiah chapter 26, this passage, this sermon is is repeated almost verbatim, and the people's response in Jeremiah 26 is, You must die. So, with that in mind, let's pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, I pray that these ancient words would impart in our minds and in our hearts the truth, that you would show us your grace and your mercy, along with your holiness. Father, I pray that you would do these things in Jesus Christ because it is only him that we can look to for hope in our sin. Amen. Let's jump right in. Look at verses 3 through 15 where the first thing that God tells Jeremiah to proclaim to these people is how they had distorted their religion. How they had distorted their religion. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I, that I gave of old to your fathers forever. 
Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast out you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Now, don't miss here that God is talking to the devout Jews. These weren't the heathens that stayed home to watch football. These were the the Jews that were at church. So what exactly was the real problem? If you look again at verse 3, God says the people kept saying the temple, the temple, the temple. But God says in verse 3 and in verse 8 that they were trusting in deceptive words. So what's deceptive about saying the temple, the temple, the temple? Well, they thought that as long as they fulfilled their religious obligations, we would say as long as they went to church, they could live however they wanted. They thought they could live as sinfully as they wanted because as long as they offered sacrifices, God had to forgive them. In other words, they thought they had God in a pickle. They thought that because they were God's people, he couldn't destroy them. Like the temple was was a sanctuary from God's wrath. He won't destroy his temple, they said. As As long as we're in the temple, God can't do anything to us. You see, their religion had become just that, a religion. They had distorted the whole purpose of their religion to the point that it was not only just a a dead exhibition of useless ceremony. But they were using it as a license for evil. In fact, if you look at verse 6 through 9 again, God says, if you do not oppress the sojourner, fatherless, widow, if you don't shed innocent blood, if he says, if you don't go after other gods, if you skip down to verse 9, he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods? Do you know what, what God just listed? That's a very specific description of how they had broken every, all of the Ten Commandments. And God says in verse 10, after that, He says, And you will come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered after doing that? Like, you're going to come here and act like I don't care how you live as long as you go through the, the spiritual motions? Of course not. So why does he tell them then to go look at Shiloh in verse 12? Well, you see, the temple in Jerusalem hadn't always been there. When Moses brought the people from from Egypt into the promised land, 
at first, his temple, the place where he was worshipped, was this, this little village called Shiloh, north of Jerusalem. However, because of the northern tribe's sin, God brought in the Assyrians and leveled that temple. In other words, God's saying, you don't think I'll destroy my own house? Well, go take a look at Shiloh. It's just a pile of rocks now. And then he says in verse 15, I'll do the same thing to this place. So what are we supposed to do with this? As Christians that live 2,500 years or so after this was written, does this have anything to do with this? With us? What are we supposed to do with this passage? And, and I know what you think we ought to do with this passage. You think you guys are good Christians in a strong church on a Sunday morning, so I know what you think I should do is have the ushers go get the whips out of the closet, bring them back in here, and start beating ourselves for how we're exactly the same. Well, yes and no. No, we're not going to go get the whips. I do think there is a significant number of Americans who call themselves Christian, who would do well to recognize that God is still talking about them in Jeremiah 7. Our culture is rife with dead churches. Churches who do a whole lot of things except for glorify God with their lives. So in one way, I think we could look at this and hear God saying to us, don't think, American Christians, that you can just live however you want during the week because you go to church. Don't think that you can love money and hate each other and then go sing a few songs, say a few Hail Marys, have some dude put a cracker on your tongue, and then everything's okay. That's not how this works. I think that is one answer we need to, to, to hear. But here's the thing. While I think this applies to many American Christians, for the most part, I don't think that's us. I don't think this, this is exactly our church, and I don't say that pridefully. I'm saying overall, I know this church has a genuine heart for their lives to match what, what happens here on Sunday morning. I know that's true, not perfectly by any means. But we're not like God is really describing here. So, I guess that means that's all I have for you this morning. I hope you have a good week. <laughs> Just kidding. But it still begs the question, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, here's the thing. Just because we're not necessarily like this right now, does that mean that we could never get here? Meaning, just because we, we generally don't want to distort our faith, does that mean we're never in danger of doing so? Absolutely not. Which means when we read passages like this, what we need to be asking ourselves is how can we guard against these things? How can we guard against becoming like this? And that's what I want to spend the rest of the time we have this morning talking about is, is asking ourselves, how can we guard against things like distorting our religion into this useless, rote liturgy and ceremony that means nothing? And to answer that question, what I'd like to do is let's reverse engineer what was going on from what the Bible says they were doing. 
What I mean is, is we've already seen in verses 6 through 9 that they had broken the Ten Commandments. And Jesus would later tell us that the whole law can be summed up in two commands. Remember what those are? Love the Lord your God and love others like yourselves. He said all the law can be summed up in those two commands. Which means what? It means they had stopped loving God and they had stopped loving others. Which means there's only one more person left to love. That's yourself. In other words, the first way we guard against distorting our faith is we maintain a healthy understanding of our struggle with sin. Our struggle to end up right here, loving ourselves more than we love God or others. We remain just as suspicious of our own motives and desires as we are of others. And we do that. We maintain a healthy perspective of our sin because when we do that, when we maintain a healthy understanding of our sin, our only choice then is to pursue and to rely on and to hope in the gospel. In other words, listen, when we put all this together, the way we guard against distorting our faith like they, like, like they had done in Jeremiah chapter 7, the way we guard against distorting our faith like them is we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the glorious truth that the second person of the triune Godhead condescended to come to us when our sin kept us from going to Him. We celebrate that, our need for Him. We celebrate that He lived the life that we couldn't on our behalf and then just gives it to us freely. We celebrate that, that as holy God and holy man, Jesus offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice paying our debt with His blood. And we celebrate that we can believe all this is actually true because He didn't stay dead. But three days later, He rose up again and said He would do the same thing to those who believe in Him. Brothers and sisters, we avoid our faith, distorting our faith into, into useless ritual and, and worthless tradition by joy, by celebrating the gospel. Celebrating the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what will happen when we do that? You know what will happen as we grow in our love for our Savior? We'll want to be more like Him. Which means we'll want to do what Jeremiah said the people of Judah were not doing. We'll want to fulfill the law of the one we enjoy the most because it describes Him. We guard from distorting our religion by celebrating the gospel, but let's keep going because this, this wave is continuing to grow. So if the people have distorted their faith so badly, what should Jeremiah do? What should Jeremiah do? Because many other leaders and prophets in Scripture prayed when they found themselves in the same position as Jeremiah. When, when Moses came down the mountain after the people were, were, were worshiping the golden calf, he told the people, you just sit tight, I'm going to go pray that God will forgive you. When, when God was going to judge 
all of, of Israel because David had disobeyed and taken a census. David prayed to God that God wouldn't hold his sins against the people. When Ezra realized that the people were intermarrying among unbelievers, it says that he tore his robe and he fell to his knees and he prayed that God wouldn't uh, judge them for this sin. So what about Jeremiah? What should he do? Well, beginning in verse 16, God tells Jeremiah not to pray for these people because they had domesticated their idolatry. Look at verse 16. As for you, that's Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold... My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and of the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. And, I, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Now go back to verse 18, and I want you to really picture what God is saying, okay? He, he's, he's asking Jeremiah to speak this on the steps of the temple. He just finished talking about how they distorted their religion, how they were in the house. And so the picture that we get as we move through this text is that they get done with church, they hop in the minivan, they head home, and everyone gets to work performing you know, whatever their task is for, for lunch or dinner. The, the children go get some wood so the father can build a fire while the mother is, is making the dough. And then they sit down to the table after church and pray to a pagan goddess of fertility, probably named Asherah. They pray to a goddess who was worshipped primarily by sleeping with temple prostitutes who then sacrificed the, 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 the children that came from that. That's who they pray to after they get home from church. God is saying that was their Sunday brunch, an offering to the Queen of Heaven. So he tells Jeremiah, don't waste your breath on prayer, because their depravity has become systemic. Their sin, it's permeated to the deepest roots of their lives. It's in the home. They were celebrating the provision and the, and the satisfaction they received from other gods. And they weren't doing this in secret. They weren't doing this every once in a while. They were actually doing this in the home. They were teaching this 
to their children. In fact, they had actually reversed one of the most important commands of the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 called the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And these things that I'm teaching you today shall be on your heart. And, listen, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them. When you rise up and when you go down, when you walk along the way, when you sit, this is what should be on your mouth. They had reversed that. Their conversations around the dinner table were not filled with the, with the glories of God, but, but with pagan idols. They weren't teaching their children to look to God, but to their idols. It's the name of false gods that were on their lips during the day, not the name of the Lord. So God says in verse 21, Don't bother wasting meat sacrificing to me doesn't mean anything. He's basically saying, just save your meat for a barbecue. That would put it to better use. Just eat it. Now again, I think there are many American Christians who would do well to take a warning from Jeremiah. There are many Christians in our culture who are, are dangerously flirting with idols. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In our culture, there is still a woman to whom many Christians pray. Her name is Mary, the mother of Jesus who has been deified. That's an example. But parents, maybe a little closer to home, ask yourself this. How are you training your children to make decisions? Like what prioritizes their decisions? Are you training them to make decisions based on their God? Or are you train, training them to make decisions based on other more important issues, more important factors? Like how are you teaching them to approach their job or their education or their spouses? Are you teaching them to find a good place to go to school or find the right job or find the right wife and then find a place to worship God? What's the priority in that scenario? Or are you teaching them that every decision is made through the lens of glorifying and obeying God first, and then you do those other things? You see, these are ways that even some of us today are flirting with this idolatry that, that God is on the list of priorities and not the list of priorities. Which means, again, the question we need to be asking ourselves is how do we guard against domesticating our idolatry? How do we guard against from our idolatry becoming systemic? Because if we believe what Calvin said, and we should, he said we are idol factories. We're just pachink, sending them out. Pachink, we just create idols all day long. Well, I hope you can guess what the answer is. Because it's the same. The answer is we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the gospel in every aspect of our lives, not just on Sunday morning. We celebrate the gospel in our homes by allowing it to permeate every decision we make. Every decision is made based on the foundation of how can I best glorify the one who died for me when I least deserved it. 
Rather than, than, than which job I will, 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 will make me the most money or, or which school will I learn the most or which spouse will make me the most happy. No, we ask which job or which school or which spouse can I, can I glorify God the most? From work to school to home to friends to activities to hobbies to everything, our primary focus and our desire is, is to bring Jesus into every conversation. We used to have this old beagle named Copper. Now, the thing about Copper was, like most hounds, the slightest smell, the slightest unknown noise, he'd throw his head back and boom! And it drove us nuts. The funny thing was that you could see in his eyes that he knew we didn't like it. While at the same time you could see he couldn't help it. And so you'd hear this little sound and you'd look at him like, don't you do it. And he'd look back at you with this helpless look in his eyes like, it's full of sorry, but then like he couldn't hold it in. He just look at you ashamed and boo. Well, brothers and sisters, we guard ourselves from domesticating our idols by being spiritual beagles, minus the shame. Creatures who are incapable of restraining the glory of the gospel at the slightest stimulus. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, mom or dad. Love Jesus, my child, and then, de- then decide where you can do that the best. I don't know what I, where I want to go to school, mom and dad. <clears throat> find a place where you can worship Jesus, my child, and then find a school nearby. Your friends or coworkers bring up a problem or a heartache or a fear that they have. You need Jesus, my friend. He's the only one that offers you not only the peace that surpasses understanding that you're looking for, but salvation from your larger problem, which is your sin. Brothers and sisters, we guard against distorting our religion and domesticating our idols by celebrating the gospel. Lastly, let's look at the crescendo of this wave that is going to crush the people of Judah, beginning in chapter 7, verse 27. God says, so you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They've put idols in the temple. Verse 31, and they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they, will, for they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. 
And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, meaning there's no, <clears throat> no, no everybody from king to peasant shall be brought out of their tombs. Desecrated, he's saying. Verse 2, And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, which they have sought and worshipped. Your bodies are going to be spread out before these idols that you worshipped. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Yikes. First, God told Jeremiah to speak words of judgment to Judah because they had distorted their religion. But then he, he tells Jeremiah not to speak prayer because they had domesticated their idolatry. But lastly here, God tells Jeremiah to speak words of judgment and destruction because they were destroying innocence. Because they were destroying innocence, the people of Judah had gone so far <clears throat> that they were offering their own children as burnt sacrifices. They were taking their own infants, setting them on a bronze altar that had a raging fire built inside of it, and roasting them alive. And the language of verse 31 suggests that they were doing it in God's name. It is the final and, and most disturbing aspect of a people who had so distorted their faith that they were destroying innocence in the name of the protector of the innocent. So God says, fine, you want death? I'll give you death. I'll give you so much death that there won't be enough earth for you to bury people in. I'll give you so much death that your bodies are just going to lie on the ground and rot until the scavengers are done with it, and then the sun's going to bleach your bones. In fact, God says in, in chapter 8, verse 3, that you're going to be so miserable that you'll prefer rotting on the ground than living. This is shocking language, and we need to let it shock us. We need to let the righteous anger of our Lord frighten us. I don't know if I have heard a more apt description of our culture. Let me explain what I mean. I don't know if you've heard this yet, but the debate around abortion is, is shifting. The debate has always been around when does life start? Conception, nine weeks, birth, all kinds of different things, heartbeat. That's been the debate, but that debate is shifting, and I don't know if you've heard this yet, but, but, the, but the responses now of some of the leading advocates for abortion, the responses now are, yeah, it's a life. I know it's a life. We're going to kill it. Now what are you going to say? That, that, that is now becoming the, the debate on abortion is, yes, we know it's a life. We accept it's a life, but it's in my body, so I can kill it if I want to. 
In other words, our culture is hurtling towards Judah as fast as they can, where we not only admit we're killing babies, but we openly promote it and attack those who condemn it. It's what Paul called a debased mind in Romans chapter 1, a perverted mind that's incapable of discerning right from wrong. And make no mistake, in verse 30, chapter 7, verse 32, where God speaks of a place called the Valley of Hinnom, in Hebrew, that word is guy for valley and hinnom for, for weeping. So, gainum. If you're familiar with the New Testament, those two words ought to remind you of something, gainum. The New Testament is translated Guyana. It's the burning pile of garbage outside Jerusalem that Jesus compares to hell. In other words, Jeremiah is prophesying the damnation of those who would not turn from knowingly slaughtering innocents for their own benefit. I told you this chapter was dark. What that does, though, is that begs the question even more. What are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to guard ourselves from joining our culture even a little bit in the destruction of innocence? Well, brothers and sisters, no matter, how, no, ba- no matter how bad the circumstances get, you need to know the answer by now. We guard against this by celebrating the gospel. And I think we can, we can do that. We can celebrate the gospel in this instance in two ways. The first way is this. As we celebrate that the gospel begins with the fact that there is right and wrong. You have no gospel if you have no sin. Wickedness is part of the gospel. It's what provides the need for it. And we celebrate that there is a right and a wrong. We hold fast to the truth that our God is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. We hold fast to that truth because the further our world pulls away from God the more pressure there is going to be on us to follow them, even a little bit. And we have to hold steady to that anchor that there is right and there is wrong. To guard against ourselves joining them in this this destruction of innocence. The truth. We celebrate the truth that every life has immense value inherent value from conception simply because God ordained them to be conceived. We hold on to that truth. It's the first way we celebrate the gospel is we hold fast to the truth that sin is real. But that leads to the second way we guard from joining our culture in the destruction of innocence. You see, the Bible is very, very clear that this kind of behavior is going to create great heartache and pain. It's it's going to create an entire generation of people who are enslaved to the grief of their sin, the despair of their sin. Generations who are chained to to the... consequences of their sin and and therefore the futility that their sin 
uh, didn't provide what they wanted it to. Which means that as our culture slides deeper and deeper into that darkness, that horrific spiral of sinning to get what you want, and then the futility that it doesn't happen, so sinning some more to get what you want, and then the futility that it doesn't happen. As our culture slides into that hole, not only should we become more and more obvious by holding fast to the truth, but we should also become more and more obvious by the hope and the joy and the love and the grace that radiates out of us because of Jesus Christ. As this world gets darker, our celebration of the gospel must become brighter. The light of the joy of the grace of Christ in our lives should become blinding to those who are living in this ever-darkening world. We should become more offensive to some, while at the same time more appealing to those who are looking for salvation. The peace we have should, should become more offensive to those who want conflict, yet, yet more desirable to those who are tired of fighting. The hope we have should become more offensive to those who don't want it, while at the same time it should attract those who desperately need it. The, the joy that we have should become blinding to those who hate the light. It should bug them to death, yet inviting to those who are tired of the dark. Brothers and sisters, our culture has already created millions of women who think there is no one who can rescue them from the, from the despair and the heartache that they feel from having an abortion. Millions of women already in that darkness. We must be the ones who make it clear to them that there is a place of grace for them. Because our world will not do that. Our world will condemn them for not being proud of what they've done. We must convince them. We must be the ones that, that, that show that there is a God who would die to forgive them. We must be the ones that show that there is salvation for even the worst of sinners. And not just women. This culture is going to generate a great mass of people who despair of life because of their sin and the futility that they cannot do anything about it. So we must be those who not only stand against the sin of this culture, but who stand out in this culture. Who stand out by proclaiming and living and shining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who stand out by celebrating the Savior that we love so deeply. That's how we guard against this stuff. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious blessing it is that you would open our hearts to your, your grace and your mercy. And Father, I pray this morning <clears throat> that you would press us and grow us and give us the desire to share that the hope and the peace and the love that you have shown us that it would become obvious to those around us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to stand against the darkness of this world while at the same time the, the desire and the joy of seeing others come to that light. Father, I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for, for how you 
sacrificed Jesus Christ for our, for our sin. I pray, Lord, that that would be the constant focus of our minds, the topic of our lips, the desires of our heart. Father, so it's in His name that I pray. Amen.